Welcome to the fifth episode of Seize the Day with Jim and Winston. We have some really interesting uh, topics to discuss and lots of preparation going towards it. So I think you'll be really interested and have some fun with us today. Yeah, Jim. I mean, can you believe it's already February? It's February 27th, 2016. Yeah, where did that go? I don't know. We're on the fifth episode, or lucky five. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we got some exciting stuff to talk about since the last podcast, eh? Sure do, Winston. Uh, lots of uh, things that apply to uh, life in general and potentially even business, if that's the tack you want to take with it. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned potential. That's one of our topics today. In fact, I'll give them a lowdown of what our four topics are of the day. Um, the first being something that Jim had brought up about freedom, and we'll elaborate a little bit on that. Um, secondly, we'll talk about competence and Next, what will we talk about after confidence there, Jim? Oh, we'll, we'll move on to potential. That sounds great. I could then, potentially be awesome. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and then from potential, we'll look at where, you know, maybe a couple situations of potential has resulted in some pretty amazing things or lives. Yeah, like realizing our potential and taking action and seizing the day with that, right? You got it. All right, brother. So... We welcome um, our friends, family, and uh, strangers to the mix. And, you know, if you uh, found us through the web out of the six billion people on the planet, we welcome you to our podcast. And uh, I think we're going to kick it off by talking about freedom. Jim, what does that make you think about today for freedom? Well, freedom, you know, I was just thinking about this not too long ago. And what makes a, a weekend so sought after or days off. Some people don't work the normal five and two schedule, but you know, your, your, your duty with your work responsibilities has uh, been fulfilled and you get a couple days off. What, what makes that so coveted and, and sought after? Well, you know, it's the fact that it's freedom and you can do what you want to for those two days. Um, doesn't, doesn't mean that sometimes we don't do some things that, that, uh, we have to and not want to, but, you know, we, we have the freedom to choose when that may happen in the day. And, you know, we have the freedom to, to choose things we, we would like to do in that time. Uh, so, that I, you know, I think that, that is just a snippet of, of what freedom can, can mean and, and maybe the mindset it puts us in when freedom is uh, in line with what we're doing. Yeah, I like that. You know, it's funny. I mean, I think when we started Seize the Day last year, our idea was kind of like freeing our own thoughts and then since we were spending time together just sharing and, and bantering about things that we knew about and the, just thoughts that come up with us, we were thinking about, in that one sense, is a form of freedom by sharing these ideas uh, with others with the intention of um, it landing on the right ears, you know, and, um, you know, there is a freeing process of trying to seize the day and not holding back and uh, having that ability to be free to choose and and make decisions is a is a is a gift. Yeah, and just just as an aside, uh, the book I'm reading right now, and it'll take me a little bit of time to get through it because it's there's a lot of thought with it, and uh, it's it's a fairly thick book to boot. Uh, but it's Nelson Mandela's A Long Walk to Freedom. Wow. Good so there's a, there's some real parallels there to to our first topic. Wow, deep. So how far have you gotten in that book? Oh, I'm maybe about uh, 15, 20% into it. 
Wow, cool. Yeah, because I think you know it, that's a large, that's a long, thick book. That's um, I think that was published back in the nineties, and um, isn't it his autobiography roughly? Yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah, so I mean Nelson Mandela was a major uh, figurehead, South African president, um, and then he was in prison for quite a long time too, wasn't he? Yeah, on Robben Island. I have got nowhere near that. I'm really just uh, at the point where uh, he's been a student for a while and he's moved on to Johannesburg. So it's in his early years in Johannesburg right now is the part of the book that I'm at. Huh, deep, deep. Well, you got to fill us in as you get through that. But I think that's a neat way to, to kind of segue into the long walk to freedom because, uh, you know, I, I think in a way, uh, when we're born, we have a long walk to freedom. I mean... We were born as a, you know, as a baby, as a child, and we grow and we, we are taught how to walk and we're taught how to, to speak and communicate, but our true freedom moments aren't, they evolve. I think we, we start to gain freedoms until we get, I think until things go in reverse when we start to lose freedoms. What I'm saying is that you grow up to a point where you're independent. You learn to go to school, make friends, you know, learn how to drive, have a car, um, get in relationships, marry, um long-term relationships have children or otherwise and then as you get older some of the earlier things that you gained you lose and that's like freeing them you know like you reverse the process and then you go from uh, being adult-like to going back to being childlike in a sense you know yeah there's probably no freer time in a person's life than their their first five or six years because you know even though it's it's constant learning and development and all that there's there's not a whole lot of schedule or need to make money or any of those sorts of things going on. It's all learning time. Right. And, you know, we look at the other end of the spectrum and, you know, those who reach retirement have, you know, hopefully the financial means that they're able to explore anything they want within their means, obviously. Right. Uh, in their day. Mm-hmm. Heavy duty. You know... When I think about freedom as a whole, and I think about first world countries like you know Canada, U.S. and and the like, most European countries too, um, I think about the the whole idea of of um, how we have certain freedoms, but yet we can still see that missing tooth, no matter where we are. Like for example, you know, if you have a, a pack of sixty four crayons, you know those good old Crayolas with the little pencil sharpener on the back of it. And you get the pack of those, and you know, um, you think, wow, that's a pretty complete set. And so let's say you go start coloring in the coloring pages when you're young, and then, you know, you use it day after day, and eventually one of them will break, or you'll lose one of the crayons, right? And, you know, the next time you put those cray the crayon set back together again, I remember as a child, I always loved putting it back so that it was a complete set, like a set of keys on the piano, right? And the minute that the set became incomplete it's sort of lost a little bit of the shine but yet there's a weird freedom to losing that shine you know what I'm saying? it's like the first thing you get on your new car at, <laughs> at first it's like it's traumatic because it's like your new baby right and you get that first thing and it's like oh I can't believe somebody was so careless and dinging my car and opening the door to it and then you look at the ding and it bothers you you try to buff it up a little bit to get rid of it and try to walk around it so you don't see it and then the next day happens, then you get another ding. That hurts too. Now you got two dings, right? Now the third day happens, another ding or a scratch or, or something. 
And you might have even done it yourself. You know, it had a, a jacket with a zipper on it and that scraped along the side and you just kind of buffed it out. But suddenly the newness is disappearing. But in the, in the absence of perfection, there's a certain amount of freedom that revolves. Well, I'll, I'll also take this uh, great, great uh, preface here, Winston. If the crayons don't get used, what use are they? Oh, that's deep. Like right? That. So the, the, there's a purpose to them. So if right. you don't use them, why, why, you know, why covet them so much? So exactly. And, and if you look at what their use could, could produce, artwork, mm -hmm. wow. I mean, that's, that, that could be very um, freeing for someone to look at. I like that. I like that. You know, like, uh, you know, that's a nice spin or twist on what I was talking about the crayons. Yes, it's, it's traumatic at first when you break the set, but it's even more traumatic, I would think, or more lost potential and not, never using the crayons to the fullest potential to create the art they were intended to create. And, and we'll, we'll take that one, maybe one step further, you know, uh, many of us have the good china or the good set of glasses or whatever. Right. And um, if you don't, if you don't ever use them, but once a year, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's a special occasion. I, you know, I can see a bit of that, but you know, they they should be as coveted to use every day or every week. You know, they they shouldn't. If they're just behind a shelf, then they're there's no value in them. Oh, I agree. I mean, it's, they're nice to look at, but, you know, you know it, go, it leads me to the saying, you know, a lot of people come in the world quietly, live quietly, and then die quietly. What a I'm life saying, of quiet desperation? Exactly. They don't, like, you know, and you hear about marriages happening that way. They, you know, they might, they, they might get married with a bang and, and then, um, you know, have, have a very comfortable life, but they... They separate quietly too because there's no passion. They've lost the spark, right? You know, so when I think about like where we go with what we have, I mean, you know, when, when I, I, like this is on a relationship level, but when, when a couple gets married and they have all that freedom to make that relationship as great or as bad as they want it to be, there's a huge amount of potential there, right? And I think the worst is when we don't scrape the surface to find out potentially how great it could be. Very interesting. I, I completely agree with you. You know, you can, I mean, as I've said in a previous podcast, we're, we're uh, doing yoga almost every day after work and it's, you know, we could just sit down and watch television and be done with it, right? But right. It's, it's a great time to spend together. And it's, it's a potential realized. I mean, some, some people, some couples don't take that every day. And it, it, as much as what the yoga does, so does the time together do good things. Yeah, and, and that's really cool because not, you know, you know, the purpose in going to see a movie with a friend, for example, right, is not just to see the movie. You know, it starts out being about, okay, um, we both want to see a movie. We both want to do the same thing. But I think there's a human desire and need for connection, you know, in the sense that we all try to find a deeper meaning um, through ourselves and through others. So I think it's really cool 
when we when we connect and we actually go see a movie with a friend and we leave with more than just that experience of watching the movie, but we leave with a little bit more camaraderie with the friend that we chose to watch the movie with. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, uh, I'll take uh, another couple uh, tacks at that one. And, and one is uh, golf isn't about golf. It's about who you spend the four hours worth going around the course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some, some good shots are a bonus. And, you know, I do, do enjoy having a good day when it comes to the scorecard, but that's secondary in, compared to the time you spend with somebody going around the course. Yeah, no, I agree. I totally agree. I think that, you know, and sometimes we, uh, we forget uh, the whole purpose of connecting. Like, even when we do our podcasts, it, part of it's for, you know, sharing thoughts and ideas, but... I mean, it deepens our friendship too. I mean, over all the years that we've known each other, it go it takes us to a different level of um, community. You know, like in the sense that the connection is deeper. Or to to know that someone out there has is willing to engage us in the same kind of thought and you know bounce off ideas. It makes us it makes us more inspired when we go through our day. Well, the reason this is on Saturday, Winston, is because we we have the freedom for common experience. Wow. The doorbell rings. <laughs> I'm kind of curious, but I'm, I'm kind of—I don't think I'm going to answer that because my thought is that I don't think I was expecting anybody, and I don't think I can do much about it at ten o'clock in the morning, anyways. <laughs> but the timing of that doorbell couldn't have been better. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's interesting. Hey, one second, I'm going to go check the video and see who that is. <laughs> I just don't want to be caught off guard. It could be just somebody looking for a donation, too, right? Yeah. Um, which is not a bad thing. I'm just saying that at the time that we're, uh, we're doing our podcast, it may not be the perfect time to kind of address that. <laughs> well, and this just goes to show the spontaneity, the podcast, uh, and now what can happen in that, that time that we spend with, uh, with the listeners and between you and I. Yeah, like that's how real it is. So the, the beautiful part of this whole thing is that I have the flexibility of Oh yes, I see that. Uh, I see the the that the people coming to the door. This is a beautiful part of having video monitoring on the front door. <laughs> um, I see that they're toting some religious uh, books, which I'm fine. I have I have no problem celebrating the the freedoms <laughs> of people to to uh, come visit on an early morning and Saturday. But however, they could probably choose not to ring the doorbell but drop off the flyer in the mailbox first. <laughs> Well, they're exercising their belief. Exactly. And I'm exercising my, my option to not to answer the door. <laughs> and I, I, all the power to them. I'm sure they'll hit the right person at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on, uh, moving on to our next topic is about competence. And I, like I was sharing with you earlier before we started the podcast, and, and Jim and I are pretty organized. What we try to do is we, we, we spend about, you know, anywhere from a half an hour to an hour before we even start the podcast, that's how dedicated we are, to talk about what we want to talk about in our pod, pod, podcast so that it's an organized jumble of thoughts. <laughs> and, and, you know, we come with a template, but it doesn't mean that we can't be spontaneous and... and right. You know, because one thing gets said, which prompts another, and and uh, now we're on the potentially the road less traveled because the fork is has gone in a different direction, and that's the great thing about it. Exactly, and you know, when we uh, that I'll I'll give them a little bit of segue and background about why I thought about this topic for number two. Um, 
I was out of my physiotherapist and I was explaining to Jim how I travel almost an hour to get to my physiotherapist when there are physiotherapists nearby. And, um, you know, I'll have an appointment that ranges anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour. Um, and then I have to drive all the way back for another hour. So the whole experience takes about three hours in total to go for a one hour appointment. And many of you will think like, why would he go so far to, to go for a physiotherapist appointment if there's a physiotherapist probably up the street? And my answer to that is that how far will you go to find the right person, the right connection, or, or the right fit for your life? I mean, you know, there are physiotherapists and, and, uh, that I've known that, that um, are located closer. However, through the process of referral, um, I found that uh, this particular physiotherapist is, is extremely talented and more, more importantly, he's very intuitive with the way that he's able to um, heal. And that's the best way I can say it. I mean, he's worth the drive for me because after I leave the appointment, he leaves me with more than just uh, the correction to my back or, you know, a good diagnosis of where I am. He actually gives me a perspective on on how to live better so that I can avoid future injury. And there's a certain amount of community in that too. You know? So, Jim, uh, you know, it was funny because after that... Uh, that um, uh, we, we, I had my session with him, and then at the end of it, I said, you know, uh, and the guy, the fellow's name is Earl, and I, I said to Earl, I said, you know, Earl, what you do uh, is more of an art than a science. Like, I don't know how you're able to find the places that are sore or, or in pain, but you always seem to be able to find that, that connection. I like how you, you try to heal the whole body, just not one body part. You know, his philosophy is that, you know, Jim, if he, you go to him, he's not just going to look at your sore arm because you're complaining about your sore arm. He's going to look to see if the structure of your body has led you to get to that sore arm, you know? Like maybe your posture or the way you sit or the physical activity you've, you've um, engaged in has caused that, that symptomatic sore arm, but there might be other parts or components that are out of whack that have caused that that might need correction as well, right? Yeah, the hip bones connected to the leg. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that one. <laughs> exactly. You've got to look beyond treating the sy symptom and look where the cause is. Exactly. That's so, where true success comes. True. And, you know, on that whole theme of confidence, after the session was over, after I made that comment to him that I was so um, uh, inspired by his ability to create artistry from what he does as a physiotherapist, he sat next to me and he said, you know, Winston, do you know what the four levels of competence are? And I'm not sure if this is something he found out himself or maybe something he adopted from a book or a fellow colleague. So, you know, I'll give credit where credit is due. If it came from another source, all, all the power to whoever came up with it. But I'm just quoting a friend, my physiotherapist, who had shared this with me. And he said, there's four levels of competence, Winston. Do you know what they are? And I said, no. He goes, well, when you're fresh out of school or you're, you've taken on a new profession and you're starting out, you start off unconsciously incompetent and what he meant by that was that we, we come into our new profession that we've chosen thinking we know something but we don't even know what we don't know that's how unconsciously incompetent we are so let's say for example you're um, a metal worker and you've been trained you've been in the school of metal work and you think you know everything by the time you graduate you got your piece of paper and you think you know how to form some metal well, that's great. You've got all the tickets and everything, but as you come out of it, 
you, you start your first day on the job and you realize that there's certain things, you may not even realize at first that you don't even know certain things. You, you have to be in the job long enough to even notice what you don't know. And that's what it means to be unconsciously incompetent. You might think you're hot stuff, but then come into a job and not know what you don't even know. So, yeah, you, you, that person steps out of that school, and I've heard this said by a millwright I've worked with. Sure. That um, you come out with the toolbox, and someone's giving you the tools in the form of skill to be able to now learn how to do what you need to do. Mm, I like that. I like that. I like your toolbox analogy. That hits it home pretty good. And taking from that, the next level of competence is when you become consciously incompetent. So when you, let's take our metal worker example again. First you start off thinking you know something, but you don't even know what you don't even know. Next step is that now you become conscious that you don't know everything. You're actually conscious that you're incompetent. So now you feel a little bit of panic. It might even come in year one or year two of your job and you realize, man, I thought I knew something, I know nothing. But I know I know nothing, but I hope nobody ever finds out I know nothing, otherwise they won't be paying me. I forgot to allude to this in our in our preparation, but I, I know exactly how that feels that you know after spending a long time out of a, what would be considered a classic um, engineering job, I entered into a classic engineering job for local government right and I, I was up front saying I'm not a designer, I can review design and give you comments and and they said that's fine, that's not what we do here anyway but you know, I went into that job and thinking, wow, great, I got this job. And, and now I, I thought, oh, oh, guess what? <laughs> i got to prove I can actually do it. <laughs> so, you know, I was in, at, at that point, I was in basically quadrant two, consciously incompetent. I love it. I love it. And I love the honesty you bring to that, that it, sincerity. It, it made for some, um, some internal stress. But I also thought, well, you know, I, I can figure it out. <laughs> there, there were some challenging days in that, and you know, you gain that experience and you move down the path and, and um, you know, those, not every experience repeats itself, but in the work world, that's a pretty common thing. Yeah. And you know, we've all been there. Anybody who's been in the workforce knows that you don't start off the job knowing everything you need to know. It could be not knowing how to work the coffee maker that day, you know? It, can be, it doesn't have to be that significant. You just don't, you start off not knowing what you don't know and you don't even know you don't even know it yet because you're, it takes you some time to get there, right? You got and, it. And then you get to the stage two where you know you, there's lots of things you don't know. That's a humbling experience. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's also a very scary stage, but which is a necessary step to lead to step three, which is to be consciously competent. Now, not everybody even gets to step three and you know they don't because... We know people that we work with in the past where they may be consciously incompetent, but they may choose the fact that that's good enough. Knowing what I don't know is good enough. And some people choose not to get more competence by training themselves or even asking the questions to become more competent, right? Yeah, and, and I, I think maybe that's sometimes why people will stay in a job that doesn't provide as much reward as they would like. Mm -hmm. because it, it's pretty easy to be in a comfort zone. Right. Once you step outside of that comfort zone and go back to step one, <laughs> it, it's hard. Yeah. And, you know, you know, there's times when it's, it can be frustrating, even being the observer, to see somebody with a lot of potential choosing not to 
to fulfill their potential and try to be consciously competent. Like to actually realize what they don't know and do something about it to make themselves more competent so they're actually more functional in their job. Yeah, that's well put. Yeah, and, and um, thanks, thanks, Jim. I mean, I, I think about a lot of times, I, I even think about when we work together on a project and, you know, we'll, we'll save some of the specific details, but there was a time when we were working on a project together and that's how we got to know each other, where there was a instrumentation question you ha had and you actually took the effort to sort of narrow down and realize the parameters and limitations of certain amount of equipment and you asked the right questions so we could troubleshoot to a certain level until we get to a conscious competence to realize what the limitations of the equipment are given the scenario and the site conditions. Yeah, and sometimes you even lock the keys in the truck. Yeah, <laughs> I almost forgot about that one. But, but you know what's, what's really neat is that I, the reason why I think we became friends and the reason why I liked working for you because you never had expectations of, of, of more than what the equipment was able to do. Like what it was designed to do. Like you don't ask a spoon to become a fork. Uh, nope, not typically. No, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not talking about the sporks that are half fork, half spoon. I'm talking about you don't try to to poke at it. Well, you can. You can poke at a. You could poke at your food with a spoon, I suppose. But that wasn't the function of why it was designed. But the, the, my point is saying that if you design a cog for a certain purpose. And you happen to be brilliant enough to take that cog and use it for another purpose. That's great. That's an adaptation of your ingenuity to make function out of something that it wasn't designed for. But don't expect it to do it every day or don't expect it to work perfectly just because you want it to. It wasn't designed for that purpose. Well, how many people have used, it, used a flat-bladed screwdriver as a lever and found that it didn't work as a screwdriver very well afterwards? Because <laughs> it bent. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah. Well, it's not broken, it's just bent, right? Yeah. So, so, which leads us to the third level of competence, which is conscious competence. Now, this is the one where not everybody gets there, right? But if you're consciously competent, that's the, that's the level, you know, for most people, it's in your late 30s or 40s, or maybe even to your 50s, where you actually become consciously competent about the work that you do. And now, in, in regular professions where, you know, you're maybe a doctor, lawyer, you know, uh, city worker, contractor, business owner, whatever. It's the point where you get to the point where you realize, okay, I started out not knowing anything about anything. Then I found out how much I didn't know. Then I did something about the stuff I didn't know. And now I think I know enough to be of service to people in some valuable way. You know, you might even call yourself an expert at this point, but it might be a little bit too premature, actually. But knowing, having the humility and the integrity to say, I know something but not everything is a big step, don't you think? Uh, yeah. I'm very cautious of someone that refers to themselves as an expert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's somebody who knows a lot about very little, right? <laughs> because those who really know a lot know that there's still a lot more to know. Exactly. And in fact, the most humble people tend to be the people who know a lot. Yeah, you got it. Because they realize that even though they know a lot, there's still a lot of other people that know more than they do. Or yeah, a lot more to this, to discover. Knowledge is a is a really um, funny thing. It can be very in very narrow bands. You know, there there can be people with high defined skill levels and competence, but it's in a very narrow band and specific area of knowledge. Either. Some, because that's where they've concentrated their time and their vision and there's blinders there. And I'm not saying that's 
good, bad, or indifferent. I'm just saying that that's the way it can be. Mm. Yet there's others that have a very wider, wider scope of what their learning has been. Right. Right. Now, you know, what I find inspiring is when, when um, you see people that have obviously honed their craft to become really good at what they do. And this, you, you know, the, the easiest examples are um, sports and athletes. You know how if we take the example of um, hockey players or football players or basketball players, it's easy to, to delineate that because a lot of people are familiar with the, the people we talk about. So let's take an, an experience with Michael Jordan, right? Michael Jordan, the basketball player, started out playing uh, high school basketball, uh, got cut from a team early in his career, must have been a big setback. What did he do? He took his incompetence and made it into competence, and he actually worked even harder to prove people wrong, right? Then he became consciously incompetent about the things that he didn't know that he could do. Like, he realized what he wasn't able to do as well as others, and he worked on them until he became great at them, became consciously competent, started playing for the Chicago Bulls, helped them win a couple of, you know, titles and got a couple of MVPs. And to the point where I remember the tongue-wagging shot that he made in midair like he was floating, and the, the times that he takes free-throw shots without even looking at the, the basketball hoop while he's closing his eyes. I mean, that is called unconscious confidence. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's at, a, you know, at a level that we discussed earlier, and that's, you know, that's a mastery. That's, um, you know, you've done your... your 10,000 repetitions of something so it becomes automatic and ingrained and, and all those things and you don't have to think about it. It's just, it just occurs for you. Yeah, it's like and, a muscle memory. Of just, yeah, and, and of in, yeah. in continuing with Michael Jordan, he chose to step back to step two and go be a baseball player. Yeah, he did. And that was, like, a lot of us thought that was a sidebar. Why would he do that? But he needed a new challenge at that moment. Well, I'm going to take a different opinion on that. Okay. And I think it's because he loved to play baseball and he probably wasn't ever going to reach the level of confidence in it, but he had, you know, he had no needs for money or anything else. So he had the opportunity and he wanted to go back to something he loved to do. Mm -hmm. And it didn't, didn't matter that he wasn't going to reach three or four in it. He, he got that opportunity and seized the day mm -hmm. and, and went back and played baseball because it's something he loved. Yeah, and that what what other need do you have, right? Well, and, and you know, and I'm gonna. Not all of us are going to come out of things that we choose to do to to reach Michael Jordan's level, right? But it doesn't mean we should stop doing it. Exactly. You know, if you love you, to you, do it, it, you do it. It can give us a whole lot of uh, whole lot of fun. You know, there's how many people go through school and are in the school band and they step out of grade 12 and they never pick up that instrument again, but they may have really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. You know, how many people like, you know, take an area that I like, uh, you know, rugby and, you know, they played for three or four years in high school and they maybe tried a year or two after that, but they didn't stick with it. And maybe it wasn't their passion, but you know, if, if there was some enjoyment in there, there should be an avenue to pursue that without the worry of, excellence or worrying about three and four steps three and four it's it's purely a um pleasure yeah it's a labor of love right yeah. i mean it comes down to like you do it because you love it you know and, 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 
And in that sense, I believe, like like you said, in some way we contribute to the wholeness of the universe. Like this is getting deep though. But I mean, we contribute to the wholeness of the universe by playing our role, be it significant, good or bad, in the in the playing of the game. Yeah, and you know, it's when you when you go out and do those things, be it music or sports or you know whatever that might be. There, I'm going to take a step back to uh, to topic number one. There, there's a freedom in doing that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I totally agree. The the freedom of being maybe not the best dancer, but still willing to dance, right? Yeah, you've got to dance like no one's watching. Yeah, to have the w- willingness. Yeah, to dance. You know, and, and you know what's interesting? My, my daughter, um, I haven't mentioned this in the past, but she's quite a talented dancer. And, um, you know, it's funny. She was uh, thinking about what she was going to write in her um, little write-up for her graduation, right? You know how you have to take the photo for the grad thing and, and, and have that quote afterwards, right? And um, she figured, well, okay, I can write about, um, you know, what happened to me in school, but, you know, when I, we were going through old, old annuals and we were looking about back in the day and I was saying, I wish I wrote something more profound, more time, timeless in my grad thing instead of thanking my friends that I was friends with at the time and so-and-so, right? Because it didn't really leave a lasting impression. And now, years later, you have the wisdom to realize that you have a moment in time where you can make some impact and actually remember yourself. And, and say something profound, and if you choose it to kind of squander that, then you don't get that time back, right? Yeah, true enough. But it's a reflection of the time. I don't, I don't hate myself for that, but I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying that you know, when you're when you're younger and less wise, you make choices that reflect your consciousness, right? So maybe I was unconsciously incompetent, <laughs> <laughs> or no, or or, or was just where your mind was at at the time. Yeah, exactly. But you know what I thought was deep? And, you know, I, I'm not trying to steal the wind from the sails of my daughter's, like, quote, but she's a, a big a fan of dancing. She's been dancing ballet for 13, 14 years, and it's been a big fabric in her life. And then she decided to pick a quote from Vivian Green, who said, Life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Ah, very good. And, you know, that brings some level of depth. And I said, wow, I mean, she used that on her, her dance blog. Um, uh, and, um, and that's her motto for why she does what she does. And I thought that's profound because it is, you know, given the circumstances, and it's on the same vein of what you're saying about, you know, even if you're not a great baseball player, you shouldn't stop playing just because you're not great. Maybe if you just love it, just play like Michael Jordan did, right? Yeah. You, and... I think um, through some play, mm-hmm. it, you know, does it, it could be an instrument, it can be a sport, it can be, you know, for some people play is, you know, writing computer language or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, through some play, mm-hmm. I think we, we release a whole bunch of really good positive things. And yeah. What, one of that is what the stresses of the day are. If if you're dialed into something, all that stuff goes away, and you're 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 into a total focus on what you're doing, enjoying it, and uh, when you get away from those stresses of the day, there you come back to them with a probably a fresher 
perspective and maybe even a couple other angles of looking at it and, you know, potentially, you know, dealing with it that much easier. Yeah, I agree. And for me, sometimes that can be yard work mowing the lawn. Like I'm, if I'm too wrapped up into a problem, if I go out and actually do something, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have experienced that too, where you go out and do something completely different from what you're trying to focus on, the problem starts to solve itself because you're bringing new energy to the problem. Oh yeah, good bike ride does the same thing for me. Yeah, and you know, you know, this is a little bit off from where we were going with this initially, but you know, I was at a seminar and they were saying that you can't, and it's on the Einstein philosophy, is you can't solve a problem with the same level of consciousness as what was used to create the problem in the first place. You need to elevate your game in order to solve that problem because you have to use a lot higher level of wisdom to solve it than what than how it was created, you know? Yeah, I think um, Wayne Dyer had something along that lines. Um, mm -hmm. you know, when you change how you look at something, mm -hmm. what you look at changes. Yeah, I agreed. Agreed. And you know, and I always find that if you're looking for a solution to the problem rather than looking spending all the time on the problem, you have a higher rate of success in solving the problem because now you're focused. You you need to identify what the problem is, but if you spend all your time working on how bad the problem is or what what the scenario is, you're not really spending the best part of your creative creative energy to try to resolve the issue at hand. Yeah, the the first thing you said there is the recognition of what the actual problem is is a skill in itself. Mm -hmm, it is, and sometimes we misdiagnose what the problem is too. Like for yeah, example, yeah, because it was a you know the result was similar to something that happened before, and it was this part was broken, and you go change a part, and it doesn't solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So you, know, you you haven't done a proper analysis or an assumption's been made at, as to what the problem is. Yeah, a realistic example for me in the past week is that I I was like um, working on my car and I noticed that the battery it seemed like when I tried to crank it over the the car wasn't starting as quickly as it used to and I started wondering is it the car is it the battery I immediately jumped to the the battery because thinking that the battery would be the first source, you know, of, of the problem. But then when my friends that had more automotive experience questioned me on the specifics, they said, well, did it click or did it turn over when you were turning on the engine and trying the starter? I said, it would turn over, but it just wouldn't fully engage, and then I'd have to start it again. And they said, well, then if it didn't just click, it's likely the starter's okay. And then, you know, the battery, you know, it didn't completely die on you. And, you know, it wouldn't be the alternator because your car's not dying in the middle of the road as you're driving, right? And so we went through a process of, of deduction of figuring out what the problem was. And, you know, I went down to the grassroots. I even changed the battery and then took the old battery back to the place where I bought it to have them test it overnight, right? Yeah. And they confirmed that there was nothing wrong with the battery at all. So I ended up buying another battery um, separate at, at another place because I, I didn't have the time to wait to wait for them to do these tests. But I, I swapped the battery with a brand new battery and I actually bought um, a voltmeter that you could buy at Canadian Tire that plugs into your cigarette lighter so you can constantly see what the voltage charge is on, on the battery. And just for a rule of thumb for those uh, that may want to do this automotive test themselves if they're having problems with their car battery, because we try to be resourceful, right Jim? Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you're driving along, what I learned is that your voltage should be with your alternator um, as you're driving. It should be about 14 volts because you need more voltage 
in order to charge your battery with, through the alternator. Because otherwise, if it was the same voltage, you wouldn't be gaining any charge, right? Or maintaining the charge. Now, when you have your car in the off position and turn on the accessory mode, your reading should be somewhere in the neighborhood above 12.5 volts. Because at that rate, at 12.5 volts and above, um, at least the battery's holding its charge, right? Now, if you drop too low below 12, then basically the alternator is not working hard enough to recharge your battery uh, as you're driving. Yeah. So I, I found all these things out. So I'm not an automotive expert by any means, but I, you know, I'm living and learning. And with engineering background, I, I logically deduced that perhaps it wasn't the battery. And as I was working through the process, I opened the, the hood and I worked on the, the simple things. You know, like majority of problems are cable problems. Don't you ever find that, Jim? Could just be a connection issue, yeah. Yeah. And so I worked my way back, cleaned the connectors. I actually took the connectors off and I... Um, noticed that one of them on the positive terminal was a little bit loose and a little bit dirty too. So I cleaned the terminal off to get a good contact. I also put some dielectric grease for a nice waterproof connection that would get better conductivity between the terminals. And then I, I tightened it really tight so that, you know, any, going over any bumps or shifts or things like that, that that would eliminate one level of error in case that was the cause of the problem, right? Yeah. And I also looked at other things like down to the fuel issue because another friend recommended well maybe your fuel pump's going then maybe it's not delivering enough fuel when you're trying to start the car and you know I didn't really look that far into it because I, I maintain my car fairly well and I, I never really thought about that but everything has its lifetime right from parts and I started thinking well what I'll do to baby my car a bit is put in the good old supreme gas as it's designed for anyways and then make sure it's got a good full tank of high level octane gas that it was designed for and see where it goes but I don't know which component actually solved the problem, but ever since I've done all these fixes and tune-ups myself and, you know, polished up the car, gave it my blessing, it hasn't had that problem since. And you could have just had a bad tank of gas. <laughs> <laughs> That's the funny thing. You know, garbage in, garbage out. It could have just been a crappy tank of gas. Yeah. And, and it's, so, you know, you've, you've described something that, um, is an analytical problem-solving process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe I should have put some dewatering agent. Maybe there was enough crappy gas in there that the water, uh, you know how people used to water down gas. It's not so much so common now, but those in the old days, back in the 70s and 80s, you probably realize that sometimes gas stations weren't as legit as they used to be. And if you went to a shadier one, they might water down the gas and you wouldn't notice. Or you, you were on the empty side of the tank, right, the, the bottom half of the tank for a while and it had some uh, weather that created condensation in your tank. So mm -hmm. the moisture got created because of, of the airspace in the tank and, you know, mm -hmm. all sorts of possibilities there. Yeah, so I don't know exactly what it would, would be. And I remember when I was younger, I used to buy, like, um, gas dewatering fluid that you just put in the gas tank and it would just burn off all the extras, excess water, right? Yeah. And I mean, I haven't done that since, but now I'm thinking about it, maybe that might be not, not a bad idea. But on that same note, the funny thing is that we, sometimes we make assumptions of what the real problem is, and that's how we get in our segue back, that part of the process of solving a problem is first identifying the true problem. And I think that whole problem-solving methodology can take on the whole... Four components of competence. Mm -hmm. 
So right? let's re- yeah, exactly. Let's let's review those four points. First is that un- being unconsciously co- incompetent. Then there's being consciously incompetent, knowing, realizing what you don't know, and then being consciously competent when we live live a certain level of of competence that we we're now proficient in what we do. But then that final level of unconscious competence is the deepest level where you have had that muscle memory, you've done it so many times that you actually do things almost by autopilot and you don't even know how you're able to do them at times. It's almost like a, you blank out and you're so good at it that you're able to do it without even looking. Yeah. And that, you know, that's, that takes a long time to get there. It does. And, and sometimes you never get there and sometimes, but you have to want it to get there a lot of times. Oh yeah. There's there, people don't reach that level of skill without it being a passion. Exactly. And, and that's the funny thing. When you get there, that's when you see people seek you out. You know, they, they, they'll go the extra hour to drive to get to you because they know what they're going to get is greater than the value that is put on the monetary value. Like, greater than the, the per hour value because they realize that what you do is deeper than what anyone else can do in your circle, Right. Oh yeah. So and just to, to segue into our our next item potential. Right. When you're in in item one, mm-hmm. you have potential. Right. So so you're unconsciously incompetent, but you have potential because you've been given or obtained through school or whatever, or you have some natural ability, as a lot of uh, athletes potentially have, right? Mm. So you, you have that potential, mm. but you step into uh, the second quadrant, which would be, you know, you're now consciously incompetent. You right. know you probably have some potential, but you know you're, you're not developed enough. So then you, you continue to work at it. Now you've reached some level with potential of being consciously competent, but you, you still understand that there's still more to potential to be utilized mm-hmm. and then finally when you hit you know number four you're you know and who knows how many people in life hit number four you know we're talking a Wayne Gretzky kind of a Michael Jordan level of 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 uh, skill mm-hmm. that's what separates you from the crowd but you know seeking that mastery is, is that's what's exciting I mean I mean aspiring to be a master uh, is the greatest gift that you can give to the universe because whatever it is you choose to do, maybe it's just like being the be- best um, bottle cap flipper, <laughs> 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 or tiddly winks player, or it could be, or let's let's put it on a holistic level, trying to be the best person you can be in in a lot of ways, right? To have that level of confidence. Like, not only be a competent human, but be the best level of human that you can possibly be. Now, best is all relative, right? You could be best and, and you could hit a level and say, well, my best is just waking up every morning and walking to the bus stop and then getting to work and coming back home. That's my best. I mean, if you set your bar low, you can achieve it easier, but it doesn't really impact the world very much, right? Yeah. And, and I think you, uh, you enlightened me through something from the Dalai Lama that, that speaks to that somewhat. So... If you could share that with us, we did. Yeah, um, yeah. Th- this is where I kind of went with it. Um, I was wa- reading this article about the Dalai Lama, and he had this this quote, and uh, people were questioning. Uh, it, well, actually, someone had interviewed him and asked him 
what he thought was most profound about um, humans. And he said, man surprised me most about humanity because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die, and then he dies having never fully or really lived. So yeah, that, that speaks a lot to um, there's, you know, there's potential in that. Mm-hmm. There's maybe some misdirections taken. And some freedom, too. I mean, you have the freedom yeah. to make that sacrifice, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, so, you know that, that quote touches on everything we're talking about today. Yeah. Freedom, confidence, potential, um, using our potential and how to abuse our potential and not make the most of it. Um, but I do find that we all are on this rat race vicious circle a lot of times where we do sacrifice... We, you know, I remember this quote, it said, be careful what you ask for because you may get it, right? <laughs> because, yeah. you know, let's say I say to you, Jim, Jim, I really want to win the lottery. And you're saying, wow, great, you want to win a b- bunch of money, right? And I'm saying, well, not really. I want, the money is just a sidebar. I actually want the freedom that the money's going to bring me. That's what I really want. So then you could ask me and say, no, well, then you don't really want the money. You just want the freedom. I could say, yeah. And he goes, well, don't you have freedom now? I could say, I do have freedom. Maybe just not as much freedom, like going to the airport and being able to fly anywhere I wanted to go, right? At any whim's notice. Or, you know, (laughs) I don't know if I've told you this one before, but, you know, um, I was once told quite a while ago in technical school that the, the only thing we have to offer for a wage is our time. Mm-hmm. And with that time comes skill, mm-hmm. right? But essentially, it's it's our time that we're giving up. Right. To, to, to be able to earn a living. Right. So what the lottery affords you is the ability to have limitless time. Yeah, yeah. Because we don't really know how much time we have on this planet, right? Oh yeah, I mean, bus could come by tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. It's right. like, you know, you know, uh, yesterday is the past, the future doesn't exist, and the current thing we got right now is a gift in the, the present. That's why they call it the present, right? Yeah. And, I mean, the fact that we're sitting here today recording this, I mean, the only people that can experience this fully are you and I until we upload this to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, if there was a major uh, seismic shift or earthquake... Or if there's a comet heading towards the planet, which will obliterate all our recordings, the only people that will experience this podcast are you and me. Yeah, and, and part of the part of the reason that uh, and you presented the idea of the podcast is that we did this so many times yeah. that you you felt it should be shared, and if somebody enjoys it or. You know, we provoke a thought or two. That's fantastic. Yeah. If someone doesn't, they don't have to keep listening to us, and that's fine too. Yeah, and that's that's the confidence that we bring to this. I think we're at that level of upping from conscious incompetent Jim to consciously competent. <laughs> Let's do a level three. <laughs> Woo! We, we're competent, and we're conscious that we're competent. We just need to be remunerated for our competence. <laughs> 
So maybe we should put a donate box on the Jim and Winston sees the data. <laughs> and, and I'm sure Jim and I... Listen to it, but if somebody wants to do it, who am I to argue? <laughs> exactly. And if they, if they see us coming around the bend and they want to take us out for lunch, we're open to that idea too. <laughs> you know, we welcome that with open arms. And, you know, and we don't do this for that purpose. We do this so that we can share our ideas. Like you said, and if the, there's a tidbit of inspiration that comes from the process. In fact, I'll just be right honest with you. I haven't really spread this idea of the podcast to many of my friends and family other than the gym, primarily because there's a bit of a mystery involved in, in just throwing something out there in the universe and seeing who finds it the way they find it. I'm we're, we're in exactly the same boat. You got one word, I've got the other because that I'm pretty much on the same page as you. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what's really funny. We, 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 you know, we banter well together. I guess if we did nothing else, this could be bantering with Jim and Winston. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think about all the radio shows, you know, uh, you, you know, you think about when you turn on the talk radio and you, they really don't talk about much. They're just talking about it, it. Really, the energy between the two people talking is what you get tuned into, right? Yeah, I I've, I don't listen to it a lot. Uh, you know, every once in a while. Mm. Actually, I shouldn't say that because I do listen to CBC quite a bit. Right. And typically, um, you know, sometimes you change the channel, sometimes you don't. And uh, the. There's been some great ideas and learning and thought-provoking through that. But when it's not to my suiting, I just change the channel. Yeah, exactly. You can choose to... I mean, time is precious. I wouldn't want anybody wasting any minutes that they have on the earth with something that doesn't inspire them or, or they find valuable. That's the... Yeah, you know, and, and some of the other stuff out there, you know, the... I don't, I don't want to paint anybody with a brush. I'm just going to give my opinion of what it is. That, you know, the CNN stuff or... Or things from a specific political view and, mm -hmm. and making comments about other political views. It, it, it's attempting to create controversy or convince somebody into a, their way of thinking. And I don't find much value in it. It doesn't stay very long in the radio. Yeah, exactly. Cause, and that's why we don't do that. We just throw out ideas of what we're thinking at the time and we're not even trying to sell the idea. We basically are talking as if we're sitting having a cup of coffee. And that was a whole philosophy of season the day with Jim and Winston. <laughs> well, my preferred beverage is a beer, Winston, but I'm... <laughs> you, you're I'm on the same vein. We're, we're the PG audience too, right? <laughs> we want to get, uh, adapt to all ages, you know? <laughs> From the wee ones to the adult ones. You the, got it. Yeah, you bet it. And, you know, when we're talking about potential, you had some interesting thoughts about that when we were talking about potential earlier, about, you know, fulfilling our potential. So you got some thoughts on potential there, Jim? Yeah. Uh, just because you fulfill your potential doesn't mean it's in a, a wealth perspective. I know we've used some people who've done really well in athletics as those who have fulfilled their potential. Right. But some of that is just about general happiness in the world and, and doing what makes you happy. You know, I saw, saw a program on, on uh, Oprah's belief and one of it was about a guy who's, what made him tick was rock climbing and he was really good at it and he did it without a lot of protection as some would say. You know, so if he makes a mistake, he's having a long fall and there, there might not be another climb for him. But it was clear he was, he was I don't know, it was kind of like uh, he was doing what he was meant to do. Right. 
he was in, in sync with his passion. Yeah. And, his, you know, from obviously from seeing what he was climbing, I would say, saying if he wasn't at his full potential, he was darn close to it. Wow. That's and, you know, living in a van or very meager existence and, and quite happy with that. Yeah. And I think he told me it was a seven part series that Oprah did, right? Yeah. It was part of belief. Yeah, it was like Oprah Winfrey Presents Belief. It's a seven-part series about exploring your beliefs. Yeah. And then on that, another cool link that you told me about was um, Slow Mo, this, um, this movie or 15, 16-minute movie about this fellow that um, rollerblades or roller skates now, right? Yeah, he, he roller... Yeah, I think it's roller skating. Yeah. But, you know, and he does it on one leg with his arms out as slow as he can because... Apparently, there's an inner ear thing that can happen that gives the illusion of floating. Right. And that was, that was what he was trying to do, was, was create that, that sensation of floating. And, you know, I think a lot of people who saw him thought that, you know, maybe there was some mental health issues there. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. it was a bit of a documentary on this guy. And, and he'd been a neurologist and, you know, he had two different degrees, one on the sort of the medicine side of neurology. And then I think, you know, the other on the, the more brain science of neurology. And anyway, he, he made some comments about, you know, you're driving to work and somebody cuts you off and you think, Oh, that asshole. And then he, one day he got to work and he realized, Oh, I am that asshole. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's so, you know, he kind of, he kind of, chucked it all away and he goes out and skates on the you know on a path by the ocean <laughs> yeah I, I just googled it to help our listeners here slow-mo is a documentary by josh eisenberg uh he, it says disillusioned with his life dr john kitchen um abandons his career as a neurologist and moves to pacific beach there he undergoes a radical transformation into slow-mo trading in his lab coat for a pair of rollerblades and trading in his ira for a taste of divinity Winner of over a dozen awards, <laughs> including best short documentary. So, I mean, um, I share that because I always like to give enough details that people can Google and find it. Nothing worse than, than hearing a glimpse of something cool and then not being able to find it on the web, right? Yeah, and you know, obviously, he, he'd probably done very well in life. I think if you're a medical specialist in the United States, you'd probably make a shekel or two. Yeah, maybe a few dollars, right? Yeah, so, you know, maybe he, through that, he had the freedom to say, yeah, I don't need this anymore. I'm going to go roller skate. <laughs> and good for him. All the power yeah. to him, right? Oh, you bet. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. We're talking about potential. So I think that even, see, we, we talked about people in different aspects of potential. Like even when we talk about Michael Jordan or other sports athletes, that's only one element of their life. They may be totally fulfilled from the aspect of being successful in their chosen profession, whether it be an athlete or otherwise. But I remember reading this documentary years after Michael Jordan retired and talked about his personal life and how many neurotic type things that he had gone through to become who he became like in in a positive note too i'm not talking about a negative neurosis but that his own personal life there were times that i mean he's won a number of of nba rings right and i'm sure he counts them and there may a lot to them and if you go have one that goes missing that could cause a bit of panic right because you like to keep things in order right? <laughs> having never won an nba ring i don't know what that would feel like but i can imagine that it's probably like losing your cell phone <laughs> <laughs> For us uh, iPhone friends, we can find our phone by finding our phone if we have that find iPhone icon thing on. Now, 
On that same note, my point is that just because somebody's successful in one aspect of their life does not make them a complete successful person. And so sometimes we lose sight of that. Yeah, that's just one compartment of, of a person's life. Yeah, and yeah. We're, we're more than that. We're multifaceted. If we turn us a different corner, we mean I look so hot. There might be a perfect angle that we're approached, right? Yeah. I, I saw a recent interview on Tavis Smiley with um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. For those who know him from way back in the day, Lou Alcindor. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, he had, he had, you know, comparable success to Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. And um, he's, he's done some writing. He's written a novel, and he, I think he's also uh, uh, writ written some nonfiction as well. But um, he was asked, you know, what was most important in his life, and he said that uh, you know his athletic achievements, although you know very well thought of in the public and everything, wasn't what he thought was the most important thing he'd done in life. He thought the most important thing he'd done in life was to be a good parent. Wow. So, you know, those are the, the compartments in, and he, he certainly was very humble about his success as an athlete mm -hmm. and very excited about what this chapter in life and what writing was meaning to him. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought it was very interesting. It showed a multidimensional person. Yeah. And, and, and one with probably appropriate perspective. I think what that means is that he actually sees what's truly important. And isn't it funny, it takes a little bit of wisdom and time and conscious confidence <laughs> to know what's most important to yourself. What, what, yeah, what yeah. Do you and, and uh, no, it, it, it just, uh, it, I was very um, interested in, in seeing that he, he had, uh, you know, so many athletes live through their success right. as they move past athletics. Mm -hmm. And he clearly found other paths in life that, that made that a, you know, um, a portion of his life that it was what it was. And I'm sure he's still very proud of his successes, but he's moved on and doing other things completely unrelated to it. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting. Um, I was, uh, I joined a, a business mastery group and where, people get together and I won't give too many details because there's a confidentiality there but um, I was um, in this group that's starting out and um, and one thing I introduced to the group was that my purpose in being in a group like this was not to become more financially necessarily to focus on the financial wealth I mean I've, I've achieved a certain level of success in my business and I know how to repeat that success it's become a little bit of unconscious competence now I can almost do my job like unconsciously and still do it very well right but what I realized is that um, you know what I really wanted is a nice a balance between success and lifestyle that's where I am I mean maybe it's not a twilight phase but and it's not I'm not early enough to retire but it's a phase where I value my personal life as much as my professional life well and incidentally Winston that work-life balance that you speak of mm -hmm. is not unique to you. It's one of the most sought-after things in, in what employees look for from an employer, the opportunity to have a work-life balance. Right, right. 
And, you know, I think I threw that out there, and I think that gave an opening for others to share their thoughts on work-life balance, because we're all mature individuals in our, probably in our 40s and 50s, where you have been to the circus and back again, and you know that it's on the same Dalai Lama thought, like, what are you willing to give up to get what you want, but, but in gaining what you think you want, are you sacrificing your health, right? And I've been through a scenario, like scenarios where you you motor it hard, you you gun it, and you you go for the the success, but at what cost? And then it causes you to reverb. You fill up that bucket of success financially, and then another bucket drains, almost like a balancing teeter totter, you know. Unless you're careful. Yes. Um... It's like robbing from Peter to pay Paul. You know what I'm saying? Like, if if I said, Jim, I'm going to burn the candle on both ends for a couple of days so I can get some headway. And then I achieve that goal. And I let's say we try to build a fence together. And we instead of taking our necessary breaks and, you know, enjoying the process, we say, Jim, let's go do this and get it done in 18 hours. We can do this. And we let's say we do it. How do we feel about our success? Maybe a temporary accomplishment that we achieved in 18 hours? But, yeah. you know. Well, you know, I've been a firm believer in this. And, you know, some, some people think they can put 18-hour days in day after day after day. Mm -hmm. But uh, quality is going to suffer. It's not possible. Yeah. It's just because our attention span, our, our, our physical ability to achieve the goal. I mean we're not actually honoring ourselves by speeding through the process unless there was a specific timeline that we have to hit. Yeah. And sometimes we get thrust into those situations where, yeah, you, you have no choice because of some timeline. Right. But, uh, you know, basically, uh, if you're, if, if that's how you're going to try and conduct things that, you know, you're not beating the mental, physical, spiritual, emotional side of your life mm -hmm. by fulfilling your work commitment, in yeah, way. yeah, uh, and so that's why I'm at a different. It's not, it's not a Zen moment. I don't. I'm not floating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, last time I checked, I was still of this earth. So uh, what I'm saying is that you know, just be careful, like what you ask for, because you sure, will, sure as heck might get it. You know, and so you got to be careful what you ask for, because if you get what you ask for, and the universe is kind that way. Just, you know, in pursuit of what you got, just realize what you're giving up in the process. Yeah, uh, I've got an example. You know, I sure. don't think I'm going to be sued for saying what I'm going to say, but uh, <laughs> I think Lance Armstrong is a prime example of that. You know, he, he chose to do some behaviors to gain as much athletic success as possible, and it, at the end of the day, it, his wife was gone. I don't know what happened to the relationship with his children. He was cut loose by Nike. You know, I think every sponsor he had has cut him loose. And, you know, but I mean, he's still got a bucket of money if mm. that's what's important to him. Oh, yeah. But none of those relationships that I would consider important and more redeeming than any success winning seven Tour de France's in a row could provide you, they're all gone because of choices he made. Yeah, and what, what kind of legacy is he going to leave behind? He's known, uh, it, it, because of the lack of integrity in what 
what was done. Um, and I'm not one to criticize. I'm just saying that we make choices, and sometimes we have to. If we make our bed, we gotta lie in it, right? Yeah, and you know what? I I read. Uh, I read. Uh, it's not about the bike in one day. I I I was enthralled with it, and and um, you know there was no mention in there anywhere of of you know his drug use to succeed. Right. So you know. Some pe people feel that they may have been cheated in, you know, getting that, th you know, thinking that he was what he was when maybe that wasn't really the case. Yeah, and what he's done too in that process is disillusioned a lot of people that had a lot of hope. It's like when you have a role model and and then you look behind the curtain and they're not all that it seems to be. I mean, it's disappointing. It's still an amazing accomplishment, no matter what enhancing drugs were taken, right? Well, I mean, he couldn't have done it without training his, you his know, butt off. Yeah, yeah. You know, he wouldn't have had that success with it. You know, I, I, a friend of mine, a guy I used to work with, uh, lived over in Switzerland as a timber framer for a couple of years, and he worked with a guy that had been in the tour, and basically the 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 guy said everybody's dirty. You you can't you can't cycle that race without getting some help. There's too much physical demand, and and isn't that sad? I mean, yeah, honestly, absolutely. Either I, in my opinion, if that's the case, then either the race is not meant for humans unless we have to have superhuman strength, or it should be, or there should be a clean race with clean athletes, and there should be one with enhanced athletes, and we can celebrate them both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, I, 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 I'd rather just see what the humans can produce. Who's right? the best human? Yeah, and I, I agree. But you know what's interesting is that if you give an avenue, like if you give people an A list, B list, C list, for example, and they they they're battling freely, at least you're acknowledging that the category exists. Like what I, I like I, as a realist on these things, you know, put it this way. I mean, I guess you couldn't really define that there's certain levels of people that are, have low integrity, right? Or people that, you know, like, I guess there's not an A-list cheater, a B-list cheater, or a C-list cheater, or whatever. But, and it may not even matter. If, I guess if it is what it is, you call a spade a spade. But if there was a, a category for biologically enhanced humans, which may be cyborgs at some point, <laughs> to compete each, against each other, you know, at least it would be coming clean that that that's what you're what you are walking in like I don't have a problem if somebody says this is what I've done this is who I am I made this choice and my my performance is tied to this this performance enhancing drug and everybody competing in this particular race has been enhanced and then you got another category of real humans which of course it's more inspiring to see what humans can actually do on their own without the performance enhancing right um, and then um, we may never need to go there, but the point that that we acknowledge that it exists at least doesn't turn us a blind eye on what does exist and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm you know I'm still for being in a totally clean situation because yeah, I agree. The cer certain things can happen from that enhanced thing, and those could be health issues ten years down the road that you and I and everybody else who funds the health system yeah, are stuck well, with paying with that that shouldn't have ever happened in the first place. Yeah, and, and indirectly maybe by having that we condone it, right? Yeah. 
and and that's a dangerous slippery slope that we go on. You know, and like what, you know, what is it? What is it say to the thirteen or fourteen year old athlete that wants to get better at any price? Yeah, exactly. And that's about burning the candle at both ends. Like, yeah. what are you willing to give up to get what you want, right? Yeah. You know, are you willing to sacrifice your integrity? Are you willing to sacrifice your health? Are you willing to sacrifice the relationships of the people around you? I mean, you know, it's uh, it's a slippery slope. You know? Oh, it's a, it's a great big slippery slope. <laughs> you know, it's funny how we, we, this is probably one of our longer podcasts. Um, but you know what? If we get going, you know, you can't stop Jim and Winston. We're seizing the day. We're seizing it. <laughs> Well, you know, my suggestion is uh, if, if you have a long drive in front of you, then you're, you're fully open to it. But you know what? There's nothing wrong with listening to it in 20 or 30 minute increments and yeah. enjoying it that way. Yeah, like I, I tell my daughter sometimes, if you have a big problem in front of you, chunk it. Take it in chunks. Just bite off as much as you can chew at that moment and don't try to swallow the only one day. Just take chunks of that problem. Take a bite of the apple, but don't have to take the whole thing. You know, and slowly but surely, that apple will get finished. How do you eat an elephant? <laughs> One bite at a time. You got it. <laughs> well, and you know, I, I thought I'd leave our listeners with a couple of like good links. I know we've been giving them some good resources on the Oprah thing, the Dalai Lama, and and the solo and the slow mo. Um, uh, rollerblading guy, but I, I came across this post from one of my friends, Steve, who posted it on um, on Facebook, and he posted a link to Mark Manson, he's an author, thinker, life enthusiast, that talked about seven strange questions that help you find your life purpose. And I'm not one to advertise for people, but it, I mean, he published this in, in September of 2014, and I, I laughed and chuckled when I read the, uh, the seven questions, but I won't take the steam from his, um, his documentary. I want to give cre credit for where credit's due, but it's a nice... Probably a ten or fifteen minute read, and um, and I think I highly recommend it to people who are trying to find their life purpose. He asks a number of questions which really make you think about about how you find your purpose, and not on a higher level level, but on a level where they're down to earth questions that you could even present to your teenager to help them find their purpose in life. Yeah, I'll be exploring those questions between now and our next podcast. I agreed. Agreed. I mean. <laughs> I mean, I think we covered some really good ground today there, Jim. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it was like a stream that wandered around a bit. That's good. Yeah, I know. And I'll leave the listeners with another thing because I might forget about it next time. Um, I was telling Jim about like this article I read in the Vancouver Sun newspaper. That's our local newspaper here. And um, about how Airbnb, that uh, company that helps connect people, um, started like to find a place to, to sleep or live when you're traveling. And, I mean, most people know that it's a successful company. They, they probably know it as the current business now, which is a $10 billion company founded by a couple of guys in 2007. So we're at 2016. So in less than nine years, they've turned an idea into a billion-dollar industry, right? Yes. And there's a flow chart that you can find if you Google how Airbnb started, and you'll find out how three guys went from renting air mattresses to building a $10 billion company. And I'm not going to steal the steam from there. There's their uh, their train either. So if you want to find out, you can Google that. I just thought that you know we have so many great things to say a lot of times, but you know it, we're not doing a service to the people if we found this information. We're not sharing it because it could be that one next Airbnb founder that's listening to this that wants to graciously provide us some some uh, shares in exchange for our great idea. <laughs> <laughs>
And as you as you framed it to me, Winston, that was realized potential. <laughs> I, I got it, brother. And that would give us all some financial freedom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this process. And, you know, Jim and I always like uh, decompress our, our podcast, podcast afterwards. What we do is that we record it. We convert it into a nice MP3 stream, and then we upload it online so you guys can listen to this. And then afterwards, we we decompile it ourselves in our brain, and then we get ready for the next one. So I just want to say thank you for seizing the day with Jim, Jim and Winston. And uh, Jim, do you have anything else to add? Ah, uh, yeah, just uh, looking forward to the next one. Yeah, and we're you know we're already into to February. Next time we connect up, it'll be during the spring break, pretty much like in March, I think. Yeah, I think we'll probably be uh, post-Easter when we get a chance to do that, Winston. Yeah, I think that sounds great, Jim. I mean, you know, so celebrating our longest podcast of our five-episode history, and, you know, there's no end in sight the way I see it now. We're just going through that tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Beam me up, Scotty. We got my Star Trek coming up. You know, just when you think Star Trek is done, we got the next generation on the, on the horizon. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. Well, to take the words of good old Spock, live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> All right, take care, my friend. We'll see you next time. You bet. All right, that was uh, the season of the day with Jim and Winston. Take care. Signing off.